Canto 30 is a bit of a transitional canto. We're still in the tenth chasm of Malabolge, um, the last one, um, but Canto 31 will take us down the deep well to the very heart of hell. And this Canto 30 now prepares us for another step change in our understanding of this reality. Um, and it does so by showing people who, whose minds are disintegrating, but not just whose minds are disintegrating, but whose very bodies are falling apart as well. And in the Neoplatonic scheme, this is about understanding how when nous, God's mind, um, the ordering, spirited form of things, um, the soulfulness inside ourselves, um, that more powerful but more subtle sense of reality, when we lose touch with that, it's as if we can't hold ourselves together anymore and we can't be held together anymore by the divine itself. And the further away you move from God, the more things fall out of existence. And as we'll see when we get to the very pit of the inferno, it's almost as if everything is dropping out of existence at that point. Um, and we're beginning to get a feel for that now. This is what evil is in Dante's mind and in this notion that evil is actually the deprivation of good that tradition. Um, you remember we mentioned before how Dante doesn't actually juxtapose, um, juxtapose evil and good as if they're opposite poles of reality. Um, rather they have an asymmetrical relationship um, with the sense that the further away you move from the good, the further away your mind loses its attention towards what's good. Um, evil does increase, but what increases more profoundly is the falling away from being itself. So it has this strange combination of being both terrifying, which we've seen in the Odyssey through hell, but also strangely powerless when you understand it. Um, and you get that very clearly here in Canto 30. Dante opens up by describing two accounts from the ancient world when people's minds and bodies disintegrated. Um, the first one is with um, the, the account of what happened to King Athanas. Um, he was sent mad by Juno. There's a whole kind of backstory about Juno's rage against his sister. Um, but he is sent mad. And when he sees his wife, the queen, one day approaching with their two sons, he says, there's the lioness and her cubs. And in a moment of depravity, he grabs one of his sons and dashes them against the rock. And then his wife, in her deep distress, throws herself into the water and drowns. The second horrific story is the story of Hecuba, who's the queen of Troy, the wife of King Priam. And after the fall of Troy, um, she, having seen her husband, um, her son and her daughter die, um, loses her mind out of grief as well and is said to have run around barking like a dog. Um, again, the sense that evil is, is really evil, terrible things happen, um, but what is really 
doing the damage is people losing their touch of reality altogether and so kind of falling out of um, reality itself. Now, it's interesting that Dante begins with these two stories from the ancient Greek world. Um, and I think he then contrasts it with what he sees in this canto, um, which includes people from his time, people from the Christian world. But what's interesting is the difference, because in the ancient world, um, losing touch with things in that this horrific way um, was felt, to, was experienced as a kind of curse from the gods. Um, Juno curses the king um, and the fate of Troy is undone by the gods and so Hecuba um, loses everything as well. But what's different about the Christian dispensation is that people are responsible for the loss of their own minds themselves in this round of Malabolge. That's why they're here. Um, they have become trapped because of their own attitudes to themselves. If you like, they've become horrific gods to themselves and have cursed themselves. And until they can break that spell, they're going to be stuck down here. I think this is another reflection of this sense of the evolution of consciousness, which I've drawn from so much from Owen Barfield, um, that Dante is implicitly wrestling with how the Christian dispensation is different from the old, old world once again. And part of that difference um, is that not only can we aspire to, as it were, see all that God sees um, in the divine ascent, um, the journey that he is going to be going on, but we also run the risks of turning on ourselves as a god might turn on us and losing everything as well. And he's got to grapple with the full extent of that now in order to understand that in a frightening way, they're actually um, interrelated because the very desire and passion that can make you want to ascend can be the desire and passion that turns against you and becomes your undoing. That's what this new calling is like, and he must grapple fully with it now. So they look down into the bulger, and they see sort of three kinds of soul. Um, the first souls have become rabid um, and are rushing around, biting and grabbing and dragging other souls around. And the second kind, their bodies are leaking they've become so distended that their boundaries can't really be seen anymore and they kind of blur into the matter around them. And then the third kind um, are feverish. Um, their bodies are kind of steaming away. Again, um, their identity, their integrity is being lost. And at various points in the canto, Dante intimates it's actually quite hard to tell where the landscape ends and the bodies begin and they're beginning to get blurred um, into this kind of undifferentiated matter, um, which, what's it, which is what it's like um, to approach this kind of nadir of reality before being just drops out of existence altogether. So this first rabbit category, we, we get a sense of this because Capoccio, who we've been talking with in the previous cantio, um, he's grabbed um, by a rabid soul rushing by and um, this soul sinks his teeth into Capoccio's neck and drags him off by the belly. Um, 
It turns out um, it's a soul called Gianni Shichi, um, and he is um, someone who impersonated uh, a, a wealthy man in life, um, and impersonated them utterly convincingly. He was asked to do it because um, the wealthy man's son wanted to change the will of his father to benefit him. Um, Gianni, what he wanted actually was the prize mare from the stables. Um, and if at first it seems that this is a, a bit of an extreme punishment um, that he's now receiving, well, again, compare the contrast with the ancient world where the gods often impersonated human beings um, in order to either assist or to undo characters. So I think that what Gianni's doing at a deeper level is not just tricking someone, um, but it's confusing themselves with a divine capacity um, to completely take the place of another human being, um, as it were, um, to not only be themselves, but to be others. And that is a very risky thing to wish to do and to toy with, um, because it can inflate your own sense of being like a god, so that um, it turns on yourself because it only serves your limited ends. And I think that, you know, actually the, the idiocy of the ends to which Gianni has put that um, seeming talent um, is shown by the fact that he just wanted a horse. Um, he could have gained the world uh, by becoming divine in the right way, um, which essentially is by losing himself into the divine self um, so that he serves and resonates and harmonises consciously with all that's divine. But instead, his desire and his will has turned to a trivial, worldly end. Um, and in the deepest part of his soul now, it's trapped him here. We meet another rabid soul who's the mythical figure of Myrrha, um, she of the Myrtree. And the story is that uh, she metamorphosized into the Myrtree um, and um, gave birth to Adonis from the Myrtree. Um, it was punishment because she too imitated someone else and committed um, the sin of incest, um, that huge taboo she transgressed when she seduced her father by pretending to be someone else, clearly very compellingly. So she too um, now finds herself down in this round of hell, um, uh, sort of uh, streaking around the place, um, unable to contain herself, her energies, her passion, um, her, her distorted now eros in this kind of rabid behavior. And Dante the Pilgrim um, gets very quickly drawn into this scene. Um, it says that his eyes were transfixed by these souls. He couldn't hardly take his eyes away from them. And I think this is beginning to signal that this is a dangerous zone for him as well. Um, you know, when you see people who are kind of all over the place, um, it's very hard to hold on to your own sense of self. It starts to get under your skin, starts to suck you out as well. And we're getting a sign that um, at the moment, Dante is not um, dealing with this canto well. We then meet um, a soul from the kind of second grouping, um, the ones whose body boundaries uh, have become porous 
and who is quite hard to distinguish uh, from um, the material world around them. Um, this is Master Adamo. Um, his body um, is said to be distended like a lute. Um, he hasn't got any legs um, and he's completely fixed to the ground. Um, he says that he can't move. Um, he could barely move an inch even if he had a hundred years, he says. Um, and in a way this is not just because he's become kind of um, half conjoined with um, the dead matter around him in his own body, um, but I think it's also that in a way not only has he not got levity and not only can he not rise um, like the fire and the spirit towards the divine as we've seen, but in a way he can't even fall anymore. He hasn't got gravity either, that counterbalancing uh, force in the um, ancient and medieval understanding. Um, he's just stuck where he is. He can't move at all. Um, now his um, failing was that he was a counterfeiter. Um, he made false florins. He added more alloy to the gold. And again, you might ask, you know, that seems quite a severe punishment um, for a crime, for sure, but why such a profound crime? Um, but I think that, again, when you think about the depth psychology um, of what that might take, um, it becomes more illuminating. Um, you know, money, um, certainly in the medieval and ancient world, um, was seen to be semi-magical. And I think this is often why it's stamped with images of gods um, and emperors um, and rulers uh, want to stamp themselves on it as well. Um, and the reason is, is because it introduces a kind of intermediate world of value. Um, you know, money stands in for the value of a tangible object so that the money can be traded um, rather than the barter system where you have to trade the material objects themselves. And again, the risk with money um, is that it becomes godlike. Um, you know, if gods and God is the real source of value, um, in this world um, and the material world reflects and echoes um, that divine glory, um, that divine gold. The risk with money is that by becoming um, a temporary substitute for the value of material objects that facilitates trading, it becomes a permanent barrier um, between the true source of value um, and the material world around us that maybe gloriously, but nonetheless only gloriously reflects the true source of value and so should become sacramental, should become a kind of channel through which we get drawn and are excited and delighted by the true value that our soul seeks, the true worth of things. So money risks disrupting that and a counterfeiter deliberately puts themselves into that intermediate zone and toys with it, plays with it, as if they were a god, um, as if they were the true source of value, rather than um, the gold um, that they're tampering with, um, reflecting the value of the world around. So again, Master Adamo's, um, uh, what drew him and captivated him in life, what the spell he got drawn into by becoming a counterfeiter, um, is what has led him to be trapped here now in hell. Um, he says that he he craves a drop of water um, and um, because of his thirst and he 
describes this craving by remembering um, the beautiful, fertile countryside that he knew in life with its flowing waters. And it's a, a brilliant piece of description by Dante the poet because Damo, um, he describes it in a way that um, fills us with joy. It puts us as readers in touch with the true value of the countryside with its refreshment and its delight, um, which of course is the refreshment and delight of um, the divine spirit in the world around us, in nature. But for Adamo, it's become a curse. Um, it just judges him. Um, it's like um, a kind of uh, punishing justice to remember this, keeping him trapped where he is now. You know, might say that he can't even access the basics to life now, the water. Um, which of course is a massive symbolism for life and vitality. Um, our attention then turns to two further souls who are kind of spread next to him. Um, but these two souls are now the feverish ones. They're steaming. Um, their bodies are leaking into the atmosphere, you might say. Um, and we learn that quite quickly that they are Potiphar's wife and also Sinon the Greek. Now, Potiphar's wife was the character that tried to seduce Joseph in the Hebrew Bible. And when Joseph rejected her advances, she accused him of rape, which meant that he was thrown into prison. And then Sinon the Greek um, is from the Trojan War again. And he was in prison inside Troy, um, but persuaded the Trojans to open the gates and let in the Trojan horse. So he was key to the fall of Troy by the deception of the Trojan horse. Once more, you might think, well, they're bad things to do, but why be so profoundly thrown into hell? Um, and again, I think the answer comes with thinking about what's going on um, in terms of their inner lives, in order that, of which you know their actions were just symptoms. Um, maybe Potiphar's wife is actually easier for us to understand now because we understand much more profoundly how um, manipulative abuse is. Um, and that's essentially what Potiphar's wife used against Joseph. Um, she used her position, her power, um, first of all, to try to um, penetrate him um, you know, with her lust, with her desire. Um, but when that didn't happen, she um, sort of ruined um, his freedom, his integrity, by getting him thrown into prison. Um, so she used godlike powers uh, to try to ruin Joseph. Um, uh, that, I think, is the kind of the deep motivation that makes Dante feel that she's down here now. Um, Sign on the Greek, um, he broke a different kind of body boundary, you might say. Um, it was the sacred boundary of the city um, by breach, getting a breach in the walls, um, possibly using a sacred sign. Um, it's sometimes thought that the Trojan horse um, was let in by the Trojans because um, it was thought to be an offering to the gods and that they should welcome it into their sanctuary. Um, and that is the duplicity that the Greeks used and that sign on the Greek was at the heart of. So that is some sense of the, you know, the, the sort of deep trouble that they've got involved with in life. Um, again, a lot about boundaries between mortals and gods, um, the risks that you take on if you start to play with them yourselves to your own advantage in life. 
um, it can inflate your sense of power um, and unwittingly cut you off from uh, the divine completely. What happens next is that a row breaks out between Sinon and Adamo. Um, they start hitting each other, um, they have a kind of um, a verbal joist, a j sorry, verbal joust, um, that um, where they make vicious accusations against each other. Um, Dante gets more and more drawn in by this. He's kind of fixated on it. Um, the commentators often remark that perhaps part of the reason why that's so is that um, Sinon and Adamo use a kind of um, form of poetic combat to do this. You know, one makes one observation about the other. You couldn't even speak the truth where, then. Um, and the other one comes back and says, well, if you think I was bad, then think about when you couldn't speak the truth. Um, and they kind of get into this to and fro to try and defeat each other. Um, it's a perverse use of this kind of poetry. And because when it's used well, um, it is designed to um, be a kind of combat that forces the poets to aspire to higher and higher things, greater and greater visions, more and more nuanced and subtle and glorious, um, guilted, you might say, representations of the world that leads them towards the divine. Whereas here, what this joust um, performs is to keep the two of them more and more trapped in this chasm of hell. Um, Dante gets more and more drawn in um, as he watches this. Um, we, the reader, see that it's kind of futile. It's you know as futile as watching a row when you're from the outside. Um, Dante, and so we, 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 we kind of uh, wonder what's going on for Dante that he's getting so drawn in. He, we might, you might say, is now thoroughly in the spirit of this domain um, with all the risks that implies. And I think that helps to explain what happens next is that Virgil suddenly punctures uh, Dante's um, uh, sort of, uh, uh, the way that Dante has become mesmerized by this, um, by saying to Dante, if you don't stop watching them soon, I will lose my patience with you. Um, and Dante says it instantly fills him with shame. Um, and I think it's actually that very shame that kind of saves Dante, because of course, he only feels shame because he is rem reminded of um, his connection and love um, and um, how he should really be joined with Virgil um, on this journey. Um, you remember, you know, they've, they understand each other in the good moments and, you know, it's like their minds um, are uh, aspiring to the same things. So they have these telepathic qualities um, and Dante in an instant remembers that that's how he should be feeling. And Virgil immediately picks that up, in fact. Um, it's like suddenly they snap back um, and are conjoined, even though it's a horrible experience for Dante. And Virgil says, you know, far less shame um, has saved um, other people, and it saves you now. Don't be troubled anymore. Um, there's another really interesting um, expression that Dante uses in this process of being sort of pulled back um, towards Virgil and away from all that's going on in this canto. He says that in that moment, he wished he was like someone who was dreaming and in the dream gets into trouble and then dreams that he hopes that he's only in a dream in order that he can wake up and find that he's not in trouble at all. And again, it's a wonderful um, 
expression because we get a bit caught up in where's the dream, you know, what's he dreaming, what's he going to escape from, where's reality. So it leaves us, the reader, kind of wrestling with the boundaries of life, the boundaries of reality, and gives us a momentary sense of disorientation um, that Dante is now snapping out of. Um, plus, of course, it also shows that when you think you're in a dream, you've got to discern whether you really are or whether actually the dream is itself reality, which in a way is what waking up is about. Um, it's about discerning um, the glimpses and glances of what's good, beautiful and true that we get in this life and following them um, out of the cave, to use Plato's um, famous metaphor. So it's at once giving us an indication of the confusion that being in this chasm leaves Dante with. You know, he wishes that he were in a dream, in trouble, but then in the dream, wishing that it were a dream so that he's not really in trouble. We get a sense of that confusion trying to track him. But at the same time, it's also giving us a clue about the ascent, which is realising that what we thought was a dream is actually reality when it's intimations of what's good, beautiful and true. So it's a lovely little moment in the canto where the confusion of the descent actually gives us an indication of the awakening of the ascent, even in this ghastly chasm which is coming close to the nadir of hell. The canto ends with Virgil saying, remember in the future, if you get caught up in futile arguments, I'm at your side, saying to you, watch out where this is leading. Um, it's as if Dante in that moment learns something. Um, he may well have uh, imagined Virgil by his side later in life, um, but it's also awakening a sort of groundedness or a centeredness in him so that he can hold on to himself when the world feels chaotic, disordered, disintegrating around. Um, the lesson is that's what we must identify within ourselves. You might say the divine part within ourselves that these characters in the chasm have lost. So the canto ends, but again with the sense of we know we've got a few more steps to take um, into canto 31 before we get to the end in canto 34. So how is that going to unfold?